uh, we were just discussing before worship, whether we're going to have a white Christmas. Uh, we always seem in this area to, to miss the white Christmas. Snow always seems to come uh, in January and February and maybe sometimes even March, but, but never uh, quite on the 25th. As we approach Christmas, you know, they say that this is supposed to be a happy time of year, a joyful time of year, but we all know the reality. Uh, the holidays are probably, especially Christmas, the prob- uh, probably one of the more stressful times, uh, ironically, it seems. So I wonder what things might be on your minds and on your hearts. Uh, what things might perhaps be burdening you as we approach this Christmas season. I know mine. Uh, this past week, my, my wife took our son, and, and they're now in New York visiting her parents, my in-laws, uh, this coming weekend. So for Christmas weekend, I will be traveling to New York to, to spend Christmas with them. And what is on my mind and on her mind and what is burdening us is uh, there are these very nice Christmas trees all over Manhattan, New York. So we would like to take our son to, to go see some of these Christmas trees, uh, maybe at the Rockefeller Center. But the weather also says it's going to be 28 degrees or, or, or even lower. Uh, and there might be snow uh, that, that comes the, 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 a few days before. So, so we're worried about what we're going to do for Christmas. We can't take them outdoors if it's so cold. So what are we going to do? We're hoping not to be stuck indoors the whole time. So that is what's on on my mind. One of the reasons why uh, in in preparing for this week, I chose this text is that even it's always good for us to, to come back to the main message, the main point of Christmas, even for Christians, even for Christians, even for us who are sitting here today, uh, we get overwhelmed sometimes with uh, things that happen in life, family that might be coming over, uh, preparations that you might be doing to prepare for this holiday. And, and you worry so much about these other different things, important things, that you begin to miss the, the main message of Christmas. So that is what I hope to do with us today uh, in looking at Isaiah 7, the prophecy of Emmanuel, of course, as we read in Matthew 1. Uh, this was one of the very first messages that God proclaimed through the angel to Joseph and Mary, that Mary would bear a son. They would call his name Jesus, and that would fulfill one of these great prophecies in the Old Testament in Isaiah 7, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're just going to talk about this text in three simple points. First, we need to talk about the background. Um, to be honest, this is not. This might not be a very easy prophecy to understand. Uh, but I think if we, once we talk about the background, what was going on uh, during that time, I think it'll make a lot of sense. So we need to talk about the background. Uh, Second, we're going to talk about what the prophecy meant for Ahaz and Judah for the people of that time. And then last but not least, we're going to talk about what the prophecy means for us today. Okay, so background, 
what it meant for Ahaz and the people of that time, and then what it means for us today. So first, let's talk about the background. Uh, Isaiah 7, if you look at verse 1, happens during the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham. Ahaz was a king of Judah. At that time, Israel had split apart. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. Ahaz was a king of Judah. Ahaz becomes a king at the ripe old age of 20. Now think about what you were like or what you did as a 20-year-old. Uh, what were your concerns? Uh, what were your, your, your uh, goals in life? What was your life filled with? Ahaz, at 20, becomes a king. And scripture describes Ahaz being a very evil king. Actually, one of the very first descriptions of Ahaz, of his evil even at age 20, was that he sacrificed his own son. 2 Kings 16, verse 3. Now, during this reign, his reign, there was a great war that uh, started to happen. I'm going to read uh, Isaiah 7, verse 1. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. So during the reign of Ahaz, there was a war, a, a, a two versus one war. There was a kingdom north of Israel, named Syria. Um, you might have heard a city called Damascus in the Bible. Damascus was the capital of that country, Syria. And then you had the northern kingdom, Israel, which decided to ally itself with Syria, and then both of these kingdoms to attack Ahaz and Judah. So it was kind of like a civil war, but with another country aiding the, the, the northern side. Now, it does say in the verse that we just read that even though Syria and Israel went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, it could not prevail against it. So, so somehow, Ahaz and all the inhabitants of, uh, of Jerusalem, they were able to, to fend off these two armies for a while. But you can imagine the kind of fear. You can imagine the kind of distress that they were in. Now, how long are we going to hold out? What if, okay, we beat them back this time. What if they come back? You know, how are we going to rebuild? rebuild? You know, it's two versus one. And here, you know, the king is, and he's only 20 years old. Because of this fear, Ahaz has a plan. He looks at his, his map, he, he consults his advisors, and he realizes that, hey, look, in this place further away, there is another kingdom, a bigger kingdom, 
one that is on the rise, that might be able to help us make this more of an even battle. That kingdom's name is Assyria. And so Ahaz has this plan in his heart to, to go seek the help of the king of Assyria. That is, that's in his heart. It hasn't come out in scripture yet in chapter 7, but that's what he's thinking about. And I think we could say that in the short term, from a human perspective, that kind of makes sense. You know, when you're in a war, you try to get more allies to your side to, to help you, and the greater the ally, the better. But God, who has wisdom, God knows about Assyria. He knows how foolish it is for Judah to start making friends with Assyria. And so God comes to Ahaz in chapter 7 to, to give him encouragement in his fear and actually to warn him against this foolish thought that's in his head about seeking help from Assyria. Basically, God says to Ahaz, I'm here. <laughs> seek me <laughs> and don't seek Assyria. Now, remember, this was Ahaz who sacrificed his son. So, so this wasn't Ahaz who was obedient. You know, we all we know our Reformed theology that everybody's a sinner, okay? But, 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 I suppose those of us who are in this room, we try to be obedient. We try to be faithful, okay? This is not Ahaz at all. Ahaz had forsaken God. He didn't want to have anything to do with God, and yet God is coming here to help Ahaz. And so, the first thing that God tells Ahaz, if you look at verses 3 to 9, God tells Ahaz to not fear. Um, I'm going to read Isaiah 7, verse 7. I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but just one verse. Isaiah 7, verse 7. This is Isaiah giving Ahaz the word of God. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand nor shall it come to pass. And here Isaiah is talking about the, 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 the war that Syria and Israel is waging against Judah. And God is saying, this is not going to stand. It's not going to happen. They're not going to overtake you. Then God goes a step further. He offers to do something for Ahaz. That is truly quite extraordinary and special. Think about this. Um, Isaiah 7, verse 11. We read this ourselves. This is what the Bible says. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth nor in the height above. God offers to Ahaz, look, if you still fear, ask for a sign. Ask for me to do anything whether it be as deep in the depth or as high as the heights above, ask for a miracle, ask for a sign. Sort of to, to, to help Ahaz know that, hey, the, the, the true and living God, he is on your side. Now, this is truly quite extraordinary because nowhere else in Scripture does God teach us to ask him for miracles and signs. You know, God does them. And we see them, but, but we are never commanded to test God in that way, okay? But here, 
God is offering that as as grace to this wicked, wicked man in order to try to, to give him confidence in God. But, as we read, Ahaz refuses God. And in fact, as he's refusing God, he actually turns things around and he blames God for sinning. Right? Verse 12, Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Okay, it's the Lord that just told, you know, offered to you to do a sign. And here you are rebuking the Lord for offering you the wrong thing. You know, Ahaz is here doing what we call, he's calling something good evil. And he's making something good. Okay, he's making it sound like this good offer from God was actually something evil. Meanwhile, he's propping himself up. This evil man, propping himself up as someone who, who knows right and wrong. I will not test the Lord. You know, that happens a lot in our society. Um, when our world calls good evil and evil good. Um, I don't know if you guys have been following the news about Twitter <laughs> and the Twitter files and all the censorship that's been going on, uh, censorship that's been propagated by the government. Now, there's a word for that. There's a word for that. My wife came from a country where they did that. That's called propaganda. That's not just censorship. That's called government propaganda. And yet... Uh, the folks that defend Twitter, they call it content moderation. Well, sure, propaganda is a type of content moderation, but content moderation sounds a lot better than the truth, which is the evil of propaganda. You know, we know the evils of abortion, but when pro-abortion folks go on Capitol Hill and talk about it, what do they say? This is health care. Well, okay, health care sounds a lot nicer than infanticide. Uh, they've even begun what's called transitioning, right? When in reality, it is a hormonal castration of kids who don't know any better, or sometimes even surgical castration of, of kids who don't know any better. And this is called that nice term, transitioning. You know, we all go through transitions, right? I have transitions in my sermon from point to point, right? They, they call evil good and good evil. This is what Ahaz does. That's the background. And here at this point, God has all the right to, to just dismiss Ahaz and forsake him. But God does not. God gives Ahaz a sign anyway. And so let's talk about this sign, what it meant for Ahaz. There are basically three parts to this sign. The first part is a miracle. Okay, everybody look at verse 14. This is Isaiah speaking after Ahaz's rejection of God. Isaiah says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
this sign, it, it's, it's very straightforward. God is saying there is going to be a virgin who will bear a son, which is impossible. But it will happen because it will be a miracle. And then that son will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in some way, this supernatural birth will give rise to a son. And in some way, this son, or through the son, we will know the presence of God. Now, Isaiah doesn't here unpack what that means. How is this son going to be God with us? But in some way, God is going to be with this person, this child, so that we will know God in some way through him. Okay, Not quite unpacked, but that the seeds of that are there. I'm just going to briefly address some of the objections by liberal theologians uh, to, to this verse. Uh, the, the problem that people have with this verse is that word virgin. Uh, we were discussing before worship the different translations of the Bible. I have an NIV study Bible at home. Uh, I was given that study Bible when I was back in college, and I liked it. I treasured it, because at that time, that was, that was a great Bible. Um, the one thing you have to remember about Bibles is that, and we talked about translations, okay, but on the most part, on the most part, the, the, the words of Scripture are, you know, if you have a faithful translation, the words of Scripture are the words of Scripture inspired by God. Okay, it's when you get down to the commentary. Study Bibles have commentaries on the bottom. Those are the words of man. Those are not the inspired inherent words of God. Okay, now obviously there's some work in the translations where some translations are more faithful than others. Okay, but even if you got like a New King James Version study Bible, I don't know if there's one out there. Okay, that the words of Scripture are the words of Scripture inspired by God. And then whatever else in the commentary that you read, those are the words of man. Um, even in my NIV study Bible, even in my NIV study Bible, for this verse, they could not come to say that a virgin meant a virgin. Okay, they could not come to write that a virgin meant a virgin. What they said was, and this is repeated by liberal theologians all over the place. Uh, I went to a seminary named Westminster Theological Seminary. This was one of the reasons that gave birth to Westminster Theological Seminary was because the, the seminaries all around at that time um, were teaching that virgin didn't mean virgin, but virgin meant a young woman. Okay, um, What they do is they work backwards. They first have a conclusion that says, well, it's impossible for a virgin scientifically to have an infant. And so this prophecy couldn't have meant that to Ahaz. It has to mean something logical for Ahaz. And so this word virgin really means a young woman to give birth because that would have made more sense to Ahaz. They, they kind of go backwards like that. Let me briefly address the objections. If God was merely speaking of a young woman giving birth to an infant, that's not a sign. That happens every day. It makes no sense for God to first say to Ahaz, ask for a sign, either as deep as the depth or as high as the heavens. 
And here's the sign I'm going to give you. A young woman is going to give birth to an infant. Well, right. That's not a sign. Okay. Second, look at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That you is actually not addressed to Ahaz. That you is a plural. God is talking not to Ahaz at that point. He's not giving Ahaz himself a sign for Ahaz. He's giving everyone a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you all a sign. Meaning, everybody around Ahaz, everybody in Judah at that time, and the rest of us. And so the idea that, well, this prophecy had to have been fulfilled in Ahaz's time, that's, that, doesn't, that doesn't match the text. Okay, the sign is given not only to Ahaz, but to all of us. And so God could have fulfilled the sign whenever he wanted to. Third, uh, that word virgin means virgin. <laughs> There's no other way to, to break this down. Um, so Isaiah was written in the Hebrew. We know that uh, during the intertestamental time, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was about 400 years where the language of the people changed from Hebrew to Aramaic to, to Greek. And there is a Greek version of the Old Testament. So, so, so this Greek version of the Old Testament was the version that was used during Jesus's time and during the time of prior to Jesus that the Jews used, okay? It's very interesting that in the Greek version of this verse, the Greek word for virgin is used. There is no ambiguity. The Greek word for virgin is used. There's also a Greek word for young woman. That's not used. The Greek word for virgin. So, uh, not only the word itself, but everyone at that time and for centuries afterwards understood the prophecy to mean virgin, not young woman. Okay? So for all these reasons, God was giving Ahaz a sign of a miracle, a supernatural, never has happened, never will happen again kind of miracle. That was going to be the sign to Ahaz. What was the sign? Uh, what was it uh, promising? Actually promises a king, a better king to come along better than Ahaz. All right, everybody look at verse 15. Virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Curds and honey. You, you guys ever have curds? It's, it's, a, it's a common food, I found out, out in Wisconsin. Yeah, cheese curds, yes. It's not very common down here. I guess it might be like their version of Scrapple or something. Um, but curds are, 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 it's a delicacy made of cheese. Back in that time, curds and honey were kinds of food that a rich person or a king ate. Okay, this was a delicacy. This was not normal fare. Uh, this was expensive food. And so, basically, 
in saying that this child will eat curds and honey. It's saying that this child will be a king. And in saying this in the presence of Ahaz, God was making a direct comparison between this child, this coming child, who was going to be a king, and Ahaz, the present king. Right? The comparison was this. Ahaz, who forsook God, who called good evil and evil good, who couldn't tell right from wrong, this child instead, this new king, would be able to choose good and evil. Okay, so the promise of a better king. In fact, uh, it, seem, it appears everyone that received this sign at that time understood it to be that. That this was the promise of a better king. In fact, next week, when George preaches on Isaiah 9, Isaiah himself develops this idea even further, or God further reveals this idea to, to, to Isaiah. Isaiah 9 is about a child, this child in Isaiah 7, who becomes king, and what kind of king he's going to be. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting God, or everlasting father. In fact, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, for example, in Psalm 72, which we're going to read, there is constantly this hope as people continually are confronted with kings that are fallen and kings that do wrong and kings that can't tell good from evil and ruin the lives of the populace, right? As they keep coming, as they keep facing that, there begins to develop this theme throughout the entire Old Testament, including in Psalm 72, of this hope that one day a better king would come, a better king who follows God, where God is with him, Emmanuel. And because of that, he would rule God's people with righteousness, with justice, with goodness, and with peace. We're going to read that uh, in our responsive reading in Psalm 72. So one, there's a miracle that's part of the sign. There's a promise of a better king, a coming king. And then last, there's a warning for Ahaz specifically, a warning about his foolishness, about wanting to trust Assyria. Um, well, I'm just going to briefly go through these verses. We're not going to read all of them, okay? But if you would look in your Bible, from verse 18 to verse 25, God is warning Ahab about the dangers of Assyria. If you trust that country, at that time, Assyria was a smaller country, but ascending, okay? It wasn't the big, great, evil empire that it became. But God knows all things. And so God is warning Ahaz. Okay, God is saying, verses 18 to 19, if you trust Assyria, there's going to be a day when the armies of Assyria and Egypt, they will come and there will be so many of them in Judah that it'll be like a plague of bees and flies that settle on every crevice and every rock. Verse 20, if you trust Assyria, there will come a day when they come and invade you and put you to shame. By shaving off your hair and your 
your beard and the, even the, the, the hair on your legs. Um, remember, remember Daniel? Not Daniel, Samson. Right? Hair was, was honorable for him. And when he shaved it, or when he let Delilah shave it, that was a sign of great shame. And he lost his strength over that too. Okay? Verse 21 and 22. Uh, actually, quite sad of a verse. It describes depopulation. So many people will die. And so great will be the, the population of this land. That even if one person has a young cow and two sheep, which is not a lot. That person will have so much food left over that they will eat curds and honey. And then verses 23 to 25 describe the desolation of the land. Even choice vineyards worth a thousand shekels will become worthless patches of briars and thorns. I mean, what is God doing? God is giving Ahaz a warning. Don't trust yourself. And don't trust Assyria. Trust me. And God is actually being very gracious for telling Ahaz that. Right? Because again, Ahaz doesn't deserve any of this. So what does the sign mean for us? That's what the sign meant for Ahaz. I don't know if he took it in. He probably didn't take it in. But what does the sign mean for us? In essence, what we have here is a prophecy about or against trusting our own strength. We have a prophecy of God promising that a new king is coming, a better king is coming, one who will not only have a supernatural birth, but one who will be able to tell good from evil. Don't we know? Don't we need that now? Are people who are able to tell good from evil? And because this king is able to tell good from evil, when we are with this king, we will know that God is with us. There is a sense of security of joy, of safety, of gratitude, of thankfulness. Now that name, Emmanuel, uh, it does not appear in the Bible very often. Basically, the next time that that word, Emmanuel, God with us, the next time that that appears is when Jesus is about to be born. Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Reread the verses. I'm just going to briefly read the verses again. This is Joseph, the angel coming to Joseph after Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, but he didn't have any relations with her. So this was a virgin, right? Fulfilling that sign, a virgin with child. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus. 
Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Remember when we said, when God gave the prophecy to Isaiah, not a lot was unpacked? Uh, when we get to the New Testament, God unpacks everything for us. He unpacks everything for Joseph. Okay? The way in which Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, isn't, isn't just that God is very close to him in terms of a relationship. Isn't just that Jesus is very faithful to God and, 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 and obeys God. And, you know, because of that, we're able to see a part of God in Jesus. Right, the way Jesus becomes Emmanuel is because Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. And we have those wonderful, wonderful verses in John 1 and 1 John 1, where in Jesus we see God's grace and truth. Right? We see God in Jesus because Jesus is God. You know, as we come to this Christmas season, I want to encourage us to remember that this is a celebration of that king who has come. That better king that was promised in the Old Testament, who has come. You know, as I was uh, preparing this sermon, I thought, of, you know, I just thought back. I thought about this question. How has this king ruled in your life? You know, how has this king been for you? You know, we, God never promises us to, to, to give us lies of just, you know, pure happiness and joy all the time, right? There's suffering, there's tribulation, there's highs and there's lows. But as I thought about that question, I thought, you know, this king has really been good for me, to me, right? All of, you know, through, through undergrad and seminary and then, um, you know, finding my wife and then having a family now, you know, everything that has transpired in my life, I can say that this king has really ruled over me in goodness. And there's a lot of gratitude and there's a lot of thankfulness. That's, folks, that's the meaning of Christmas, right? Is this gratitude for this king who is God, God's son, that God has provided for us, who now rules over us with righteousness, justice, and peace, and a whole lot of other good things. You know, next week, George is going to talk much more about that. But let us be people who remember, um, who remember our king and what he has meant and what he means for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your words of hope and your words of goodness, your, your, your blessing to us in our lives uh, for not only promising us a, a better king, but actually sending him and for allowing him to, to rule in our lives. Lord, we, we confess we do not deserve his rule. In fact, we deserve his wrath, but we thank you for his grace and that he loved us and that he gave his life for us and now we are by grace his people 
Thank you for all the goodness. Thank you for all the things that you have provided in our lives. Help us. Give us grace, O oh Lord. In this season of, of many stresses and distractions and, and uh, things to take care of, and for, for good reason. But Lord, help us to, to remember um, our King and to give him thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.